But I wonder, and I, I think about shows like, say, Dr. Phil. You don't have to raise your hand if you've watched that or if you watch it religiously. Um, but I just think about shows like, say, Dr. Phil, and I wonder if part of the intrigue is us watching and thinking, man, I'm glad my problems aren't that bad. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We watch dating shows. We watch, back when I was in high school, it was the Jerry Springer show. That was a train wreck. You can watch shows and you can think, man, at least my relationships aren't like that. At least my problems aren't like that. At least I don't do that. And it's a little bit encouraging to watch these train wrecks. The sixth commandment may strike us like that in comparison to the others. It it may be that we read it and after having come through five of them where we feel like we just can't get quite out from underneath them, we come to the sixth, we read it, we breathe a sigh of relief and we just think, oh Lord, I am glad I'm not that bad. I am glad that I have not done that. At least, hallelujah, I have not broken that one. Well, friends, not so fast. You know where I'm going. Like all the commands, this one has much more to teach us than first meets the eye, and it presses down well beyond skin deep. Open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It's the second book in your Bible. If you're new to looking at Scripture, when I say Exodus 20, I'm referring to the chapter number. Those are big numbers. And then when I say verse 13, those are verse numbers, and those are smaller numbers. So it's the second book in the Bible, Exodus big 20, little 13. And as you turn there, let me just give you a couple of refreshers. First of all, this has to be said again and again when we come to the Ten Commandments. These are gracious commandments. The Ten Commandments are not a means of earning a relationship with God. They are given to God's people after He has already brought them out of Egypt. He says at the very beginning of Exodus chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's grace There's redemption. There's God's power acting on their behalf apart from anything they have done. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Grace, grace, grace always comes before obedience. The gospel is, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Same in the Old Testament. The fullness of it we see in the new. So number one, these are gracious commands spoken to a redeemed people, Israel. Second of all, you should know there are, and be reminded that there are divisions within the commands. The first four commandments are Godward. Have no other gods before me. Do not make any graven images. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Who thinks they could have said that without me saying it? You got it memorized yet? All right, we got some mongers in the back willing to raise their hand. Well done, friends. All right, we're going to get you a sticker. Um, Last six commandments are people word. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. 
Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. These aren't disconnected from God, of course, but they refer to how we relate horizontally in our relationships. The point is the vertical transcends or or really connects into the vertical. Horizontal, excuse me. And then finally, remember the covenantal context. There are, these Ten Commandments are part of the Mosaic Covenant, which has passed away with the coming of Christ and the New Covenant. We are not under these as a covenant. That does not mean they are insignificant and they don't reflect the eternal law of God. But we cannot merely say, well, here's the commandment and leave it at that. We have to understand the commandment in its Old Testament context, understand how Christ fulfills the command, and then understand how through Christ we apply the command to our lives. With that, read Exodus 20 verse 13 with me. It's a long one. You shall not murder. That's it. Extremely short. Two words in the original language, Hebrew. No murder. Okay? Well, what does that mean? It might seem simple. Don't take anybody's life. But is it that simple? Is all taking of life a violation of this commandment? Anytime someone's life is taken, is that necessarily a violation of the sixth commandment? Think with me for a bit. What does murder mean? Let's look at a few things that it's not. We're going to do a little bit of spade work here. It's not exciting, but I think it's really important for us to think carefully about this so that our thinking is informed by God's word. First of all, we have to say murder is not the same as capital punishment, which God instituted in Genesis 9. By the way, if you want to follow along, you can just open your bulletin. That may help you. So murder is not the same as capital punishment. God told Noah, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. That means if an animal or a person takes the life of another person, God requires a reckoning from whoever took the life. He holds them accountable. He goes on to say, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For for God made man in his own image. We're going to return to this last phrase in a bit. The truth of man in the image of God is hugely significant. But for now, the important point is that God himself institutes the death penalty, capital punishment. If a man takes another man's life, that man must pay with his life. This means capital punishment is not a violation of the sixth commandment. Uh, Murder is also not the same as self-defense. Exodus 22 says, if a thief, if, if a thief, really... If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. In other words, if somebody has no other choice but to kill 
as a way to defend himself from an intruder, he wasn't guilty in ancient Israel. Now, verse 3 adds this. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. In other words, if observers could see what was happening and could discern that killing wasn't necessary, then the one who killed would be guilty. Does that make sense? The scriptures are teaching that self-defense isn't a violation of the sixth commandment, but also calling for significant caution. Because if killing isn't necessary to defend yourself and you do it, then you are guilty. Honestly, don't we just see the justice and wisdom of God here? So self-defense is not a violation of the sixth commandment. Neither is war under certain circumstances. Peace is always what we want, of course. But friends, sometimes war is needed in order to achieve or defend peace. As we think about the Old Testament, we know war can't be categorically wrong since God commanded the nation of Israel to go to war. God himself does not command his people to do something sinful. And then note important passages like Romans chapter 13. In Romans 13, we see the duly appointed state, so the government, is to be the agent of God's wrath and to protect the innocent. That's actually the divinely appointed role of government, twofold, to protect the innocent and to punish the unjust. And sometimes war is necessary to do that. I think also of John the Baptist's conversation with a Roman soldier, in, or actually a group of Roman soldiers in Luke chapter 3. When they asked him what they should do to repent, he didn't say... You know what you need to do, big fella, is get out of the Roman army. He said, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Now, you can just imagine soldiers in a position to do that at times, right? To threaten, to extortion, to get something out of somebody. He says, don't do that. And then he says, and be content with your wages. Repentance for a soldier isn't necessarily getting out of soldiering. Even soldiering in the Roman army. Repentance for a soldier is being an honest soldier. And friends, this means that soldiering isn't inherently wrong. And please, let's not forget what soldiers are all ultimately tasked to do. If need be, take life. They are part of the Romans 13 duly appointed state whose task is to protect the innocent and punish the unjust. Therefore, make this connection. It is not a violation of the sixth commandment when a soldier under lawful orders takes life on a battlefield. Okay? Now, that's important for us to say for just a couple of reasons. You're like, whoa, why are we talking about this? Well, it's really connected to the text. That's why we're talking about it. Number one, the Bible teaches it. And I'm your pastor. And my job is to teach you what the Bible says. And then number two, some of you in this room are soldiers or were soldiers. Some of you in this room are police officers or were police officers. And and you need to know 
that you aren't violating the law of God if you have to do what I hope you never have to do, take life while performing your duties in that office. Now, there is lots more that could be said about this. The church over the course of her history has done an excellent job articulating the concept of just war theory. But my job isn't to go into those details this morning. My job is to help you understand there are certain instances where the taking of life isn't a violation of the sixth commandment. Does that make sense? You tracking? Okay. So capital punishment is not a violation of the sixth commandment. Self-defense is not either. And just war is not either. So what does constitute a violation of this command? What is murder? It's the taking of innocent human life. That's pretty simple, isn't it? If somebody's innocent and you take their life, then you're guilty of murder. The Old Testament gives us examples. You got this wicked king named Ahab. He saw a vineyard of an Israelite named Naboth. He wanted it. He offered to buy it. Naboth said, nah. I learned that this week. Uh, no, I actually knew it, but I'm, I'm learning new things all the time. So Ahab's wife schemes a way to get Naboth killed. That's murder. We think of it as premeditated murder, right? But the sixth commandment is also violated when someone dies due to negligence. Deuteronomy 22.8, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. You're like, what is a parapet? Well, add this to your lexicon this morning, friends. It means basically a fence. Parapet equals fence. So when you build a new house there in ancient Israel, you need to put a fence around it. Why? That you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. It was hot. In the ancient Near East without AC, so in the evening, folks would go up to the, the flat roofs to cool down. But if there's no fence around the edge of the roof and somebody accidentally falls off, the owner of that house is guilty because he was negligent to take reasonable steps to prevent it. Does that make sense? Exodus twenty one twenty eight: When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and the owner also shall be put to death. Again, honestly, we see the goodness and the wisdom and the justice of God in his Old Testament laws to Israel. This just makes sense. If you have an animal and you know you have an animal that tends to get out and kill, you're responsible. And if it does, if it kills somebody, you're guilty. So the truth of the matter is, murder is the taking of innocent life, whether intentional or through carelessness or negligence. And at this point, we should just pause to think about how these principles shed light on issues in our context. And let me just quickly say to parents, I'm going to talk about some sensitive topics that may make you uncomfortable as you think about young ears hearing these things. But let me encourage you, 
Your kiddos are going to hear about these things from someone, somewhere. Better to hear them carefully and biblically covered from your pastor, and then you can help them think through these things more at home. So how do these principles shed light on issues within our context? Well, first, abortion is clearly murder. Psalm 139.13 says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The psalmist speaks here of budding life within the womb. A baby, before a baby is born, is life. And God cares deeply about this life. Exodus 21.22 says, When men strive together, in other words, if they have a fight when men strive together, they're fighting and, a, and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. But there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, harm to the baby in the womb, then you shall pay life for life. The life of a baby in the womb is life. It's innocent life. Therefore, to take the life of that baby in the womb is murder. By the way, brothers and sisters, it is the grace of God that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. There are two central roles of government according to Romans 13. Protect the innocent and punish the unjust. Protect the innocent. That's the divinely given role for government, and there are none more innocent than babies in the womb. Praise the Lord that this has been overturned. Another instance of murder, and this is a very tough one to talk about, is suicide. Brothers and sisters, please be clear, this is a sin. Not an unforgivable sin, but it is a sin. Why? Because it's murder. It's self-murder. Now, we live in a particular time where we really do not want to call this sin. You, you might be a little bit uncomfortable in your chair right now, even as I say it. We want to speak about this in very oblique terms. We want to use language that doesn't assign moral capability to this. And I understand that impulse. And also, please know, I'm not talking to you right now about a pastoral strategy as to how to comfort a family who's suffering through the loss of a loved one in this way. I'm not talking to you about that right now. Right now, I'm sharing with you a foundational doctrinal truth. We have to be clear, no matter how tragic, that this is wrong. It is sin. It is heinous sin. And might I also just say to you, if you are ever in a place where you think this is the only option, please know that your life is precious. It is precious to God. It is precious to your family. It is precious to to others. You are made in his image, so you are precious. No matter what you've done or no matter how wrong things have gone 
for you. And there is reason for hope. Hope because your sins can be forgiven. And hope because your future can be different. Jesus Christ died and rose to pay the price for your sin. You do not have to be weighed down with guilt. Christ offers to take your guilt for all the things that you have done and are ashamed of. He offers to take all of that upon himself and forgive you. The core message of the Bible, what's called the gospel, the good news, is that if you will turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus Christ, God forgives you of everything that you have ever done and everything you ever will do. He forgives you. He cleanses your conscience. He accepts you as his own son or daughter and you are promised eternal life with him in heaven. Let me just tell you that this reality will change you. It might not change your circumstances, but it changes how you live through your circumstances Your future can be different through Christ. I got one other touchy topic for you this morning. Euthanasia. Euthanasia is assisted suicide and this too, friends, is murder. Again, this is not something that our culture has clarity on. If anything, our culture, given our obsession with having personal autonomy over self and not wanting to suffer at all, if anything, our culture increasingly sees this as good. But it is not good. Listen, we do not have the freedom to choose the day or the circumstances wherein we die. We do not have that freedom as creatures. The Creator, the God, He is the only one who decides when and how we meet our end. That is his prerogative and not ours. So it is out of bounds for us to say, if I get to this point, family, or this diagnosis, I want you to take my life through this medical means. That's out of bounds. Now let me make sure you also understand there's a difference between euthanasia and simply stopping treatment. So let's say you're in the final stages of cancer. You can either prolong your life while continuing or through continuing certain treatments or you can stop taking treatments and let the end come, in which case your end will come sooner. That's not euthanasia, friends. Euthanasia says, I choose to take my life at this point. Stopping treatments is just letting your end come. Does that make sense? It's an important distinction. Now, we we don't often hit so many super touchy topics on one day, but you know what? When the Bible talks about these things, we need to talk about them. We want to be truth knowers, and we want to be truth speakers. 
We want to know for ourselves, we want to know for our families, we want to know what the Word of God says no matter how uncomfortable it is. Now let's ask this question. Why is murder so wrong? I think if you ask people why murder is wrong, or if murder is wrong, everybody's going to say, yeah, it's wrong. But if you're to drill down and say, why is murder wrong? I think the response from most people would be like, well, it just is. <laughs> but, but why? Why is it so wrong? Because you are made in the image of God. Mankind and mankind only. This is something animals do not share in. Mankind is made in the image of God. We see this in Genesis 1.26. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. To be made in the image of God means that we represent God. You ever wonder why mankind is so intelligent? It's because God is intelligent. We're made in his image. We represent him in that way. You ever wonder why mankind is so creative? It's because we're made in the image of a creative God. You ever wonder why we have an impulse towards right and wrong? Why we have a conscience? It's because we're made in the image of God who is holy and righteous and he implanted that in our hearts. We're made in his image. We are God's image bearers. Every single person bears God's image. That means every single person's life is precious and worthy of dignity and honor no matter their age or ability or strength or lack thereof. That's why murder is so wrong. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for because... God made man in his own image. It is because we are made in the image of God that murder is so wrong. We do not have the right to snuff out the life of an image bearer. God takes that very seriously. So how have we done? How has mankind in general, and Israel in specific, how have we done in obeying the sixth commandment? Not well. One thing that speaks to me, friends, about the trustworthiness of the Bible is how it doesn't shy away from telling us incredible, uncomfortable, unflat, unflattering, and frankly, condemning truths about ourselves. If this were a made-up book, it would gloss over those things, okay? Friends, the Bible tells us that the first murder we, occur, we encounter... It occurs within four chapters of the beginning of the creation of the world. How far did we get? Not very far. Adam and Eve give birth to a son. Cain, they give birth to another son. Abel, listen to what happens. I'm just going to read you the text. This is Genesis chapter 4. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, 
Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Not because he doesn't know. Be clear, because he's drawing him out. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Oh my goodness, guys. We are four chapters into the Bible, and we have our first murder. And we see what was going on underneath the surface of this murder. Jealousy. Anger. Resentment. Bitterness. Cain nursed these sinful thoughts and feeling and they gave birth to murder. Oh my goodness. We just finished the New Testament book of James. Chapter 4 says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. These things like jealousy, anger, resentment, bitterness, these are at war within you. Scripture goes on to say, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Oh my goodness. We are four chapters in and we've got murder. This is not a good sign. I wish I could tell you that that was the worst of it, but unfortunately that points to something even worse. Another son of God's treatment of the son of God. Israel's treatment of Jesus Christ. Just as Cain was envious of Abel and he stewed on it and his envy and his anger led him to take Abel's life, that's a lot like what Israel's leaders did with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ burst onto the scene. It was evident to everyone that God was with him. No one could deny the conviction of his words. He spoke and everybody wanted to hear because they dripped. They poured forth with grace and truth. Nobody could desire the power of his actions. He could still a storm. He could cause the blind to see. He could heal the lame and cleanse the leper and raise the dead. It was so obvious that God was with them and Israel's leaders could not stand him. They seethed in their hearts towards him because he both called them out on their sin and then he threatened their power and their influence and they hated it. And so what did they do? Well, Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 at the end of a fire sermon. Men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God and mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
Israel murdered the Christ. They took an innocent man. And when I say an innocent man, I, I really mean an innocent man. Not only was he not guilty of what they charged him with, he wasn't guilty of anything. Jesus Christ never sinned. And yet they murdered him. Could there be a worse violation of flagrant breaking and trouncing upon the sixth commandment? No. So how have you done in regards to obeying this command? It's here. I think the reality TV show impulse probably lurks in your heart. It does mine. It's here that I'm suspicious that you're sitting there and thinking, I am so glad I have not broken the sixth commandment. Friends, Jesus ain't going to let you get away with that thought. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. What you're going to see here is that according to Jesus Christ, the command to not murder goes beyond our mere actions and applies to the thoughts that reside in your hearts. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus here is explaining to us the true intent and depth of the law of God. And I want you to pick it up in verse 21. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That's a based off of the sixth commandment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. At the youth retreat, I told the kids there were some verses I wish weren't in the Bible. Now, I'm joking, of course. Um, by the way, the one and I, there was one that I wish was wrong. Uh, it says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. I think that should be reversed. Children, don't <laughs> exasperate your parents. I know that's not what the Bible says. But so too with these commandments like rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I just wish that weren't in the Bible. I'm kidding. Because it clearly so convicts me of my sin. This is the same type of thing. Some verses, friends, come crashing down upon our hearts and press our sin down upon us in ways that we absolutely cannot escape. And this is one of them. I don't care how much you try to swarm, you squirm. You can't get out from underneath the weight and power of this text. What does it say? It says that your anger toward others, my anger toward others, this is no innocent, no big deal type of thing. These thoughts are damnable. These thoughts will condemn you on the last day. These thoughts are murderous. Friends, you don't have to physically take life to break the sixth commandment. The anger in your heart, the resentment in your heart, the bitterness in your heart, 
the wishing ill of another person in your heart, a person made in the image of God, all of that is you breaking, flagrantly breaking the sixth commandment. If you think you haven't broken the sixth commandment, you need to put your hand over your mouth and you need to say, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have broken. Not once, not twice, but a million times. And if you in any way think that your anger, resentment, bitterness, or ill will is justified based upon whatever X person has done, you need to look to Jesus Christ and see just how it is that he treated his enemies. You need to look to Jesus Christ and see how it is that he thought toward those who meted out injustice on him. What did he do? He gave his life for his enemies. Not only did he not nurse and coddle and stew on and add to angry thoughts towards others, Not only did he not do that like Cain did, like Israel did, like you and I often do, he gave himself so that his enemies could become his friends. He gave himself so that lawbreakers, you, me, anyone who repents and believes, can be forgiven and no longer rage in our hearts towards God for whatever you imagine him to have done and rage in your hearts towards man no matter whoever and for whatever. Think about this. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Anger that's not sinful. I'd argue that we don't experience it very often. But there is such a thing. And the Bible tells us that God is righteously angry at our law-breaking and rebellion against Him. But what He did was not condemn us, but give His Son for us so that we can be His own. Man, some things are just incredible. And this has massive implications for our lives. How do we apply the sixth commandment? How do we apply the sixth commandment through Christ to our lives today? Friends, we must not make peace with unworthy thoughts, unworthy words, and unworthy deeds towards one another. Think about Colossians chapter 3. Let me just read this for you. But now you must put them all away. What is them? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put those away. And then he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, patience, 
bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. Brothers and sisters, you you cannot allow anger to lodge within your hearts. You must be honest with yourself if it does. You cannot excuse it. You cannot justify it. You cannot merely say, oh, the grace of God covers this if you aren't putting it to death. And you must be honest. If you are characterized by anger... If anger is what wells up in your heart all the time, provoked by minor things or major things, if you're just an angry person, it might be that you haven't truly experienced the saving grace of God. Because the grace of God makes angry people into kind loving, gracious, forgiving people. We must put away these things and we must put on the fruit of the Spirit and seek to walk with one another in love. Positively speaking, we must think well and do well toward Others first within the family of God and then flowing outside of that to others that we meet and know and love and have relationships with. We must not have murderous thoughts in our heart. But instead, positively speaking, seek the good of all. Love people with the love of Christ, sharing with them the gospel and then loving them with your life and then relating to your brothers and sisters in acceptance and grace, kindness, love, patience. This is how we apply the sixth commandment through Christ. May God give us grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that it both sings and stings, as the old Puritans would ask. That it would cause our heart to leap when we see what you have done, when we see your power. And that it would cause us, Lord, to be convicted of our failings. Oh, Lord, cause your word to do its good work in me and in these, my brothers and sisters, today and always. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.